Hello, I'm Janelle McMaster. It's 2022 and we're back with what is now season three of Change Happens. The interview you're about to hear is with Michael Rodriguez. He's the recently appointed New South Wales 24-hour economy commissioner, the first nighttime mayor in an Australian city. It's in that capacity that Michael is tasked with rejuvenating the 24-hour economy and with it, the culture of Sydney. Now, bear in mind, we're talking about a city, like most cities, grappling with its third year of a pandemic and continued lockdowns, and a city that also had lockouts with an enforced bedtime curfew. As Michael says, if lockout was a cold, then lockdown is pneumonia. So it's fair to say Michael has a challenge in front of him, engaging suburbs and councils and communities in building an inclusive nighttime culture. He has a deceptively compelling competitor though, the lounge room couch and an endless supply of streaming services. But Michael is all about helping shift the collective community mindset from associating nighttime with alcohol and danger or just being in the too hard basket to seeing it as vibrant and diverse and safe and inclusive. We talk about a lot of things in our conversation, from growing up in a migrant family in the southwest of Sydney to being exited from the organisation that he was the managing director of, to the power of using the city as a vehicle for storytelling. I hope you enjoy my conversation on change with Michael Rodriguez. Well, welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining Change Happens. Thank you very much for having me, Janelle. Now, I read somewhere you being described as the fanboy of cities. Where did that love of cities come from? I'm not sure where it came from. I know what may have built it over time is uh, the excitement that accompanies visiting them really and being part of it. So I uh, am definitely one of many fan people these days <laughs> of cities around the world, which have become also topical in context of the pandemic and everyone having a view on what does the future look like in I think will continue to be centres of culture, learning uh, and inspiration. Uh, so I don't know. Like I think um, one thing I have uh, reflected on about that sometimes in life and not necessarily in respect of cities, but sometimes people take things for granted and I'm guilty mm-hmm. of that in some regards. Uh, definitely growing up in the southwest of Sydney and having an awe of Sydney City, in the days I grew up, uh, a slight trepidation about uh, fitting in or navigating even. And I can tell you when my dad very pleasantly bought me a, a Datsun Sunbird uh 1983, Iconic. I think, Iconic. model. It, it had so much play in the steering wheel, Janelle, and I'd, he, I'd have to drive this thing into the city and I just was, to keep going straight, you kept doing it side to side and, I, uh, you, you know, I'd be driving this thing, you know, Saturday night just trying to keep the thing on the road, frankly. So, yeah, it sounds you know, like me with a shopping trolley yeah. <laughs> uh, on the weekend. <laughs> Those things have a mind of their own. So, yeah, it, I, I think it's a, a, an appreciation uh, and respect for that comes from uh, – you know, learning to discover and then being inspired by a place that you've grown up or places that you visited. I love it. I want to stay on that for a minute. You, you've and get a sense of who you are, your cultural background. You said you grew up in Sydney Southwest. I think you grew up in Liverpool, went to school in Campbelltown, if I'm correct about that. Maybe can you tell us a bit about your sort of formative years? What were they like? The, the Liverpool that I was born into really was uh, in the 70s. And at the time, it was, uh, I guess, and and still, although changing rapidly, uh, you know, lower socioeconomic uh, would be the term. Um, 
and an area that had traditionally been, I guess, occupied by, uh, you know, returned service people um, and uh, and then waves of immigration um, post-war. So um, I am, and this will come up in our podcast, not least of all um, because of my background and yours, It mm-hmm. there's a, and, and the hard reality of it was that the white Australia policy was still um, tailing off at that point. And uh, the consequence of it was, um, I wouldn't describe it as a tough growing up because mm. I'm conscious that I had a house to live in and a family who loved me and all those things. But yeah, you you, you know sort of singled out a bit um, and and different and and very conscious of it. I think that I at this time approached my engagement with the world around me by in, in those teen years in particular, learning to be invisible. I, I think is how I've phrased it in the past because it it, it was a, a, a safer way of navigating, uh, you, you know, uh, agricultural high school where uh, you're very much the minority students and uh, uh, the nature of, of growing up in that era. But I think it has had a bit of an impact on the empathy that one feels towards people who don't necessarily feel comfortable in a situation. And then uh, I am not going to hold myself out as, uh, you know, some sort of um, master of of, of that, but I, I do think about that um, a lot, and and then in terms of I guess professional roles that I've been in most recently, uh, I've really been in service of that of trying to make cities cities for everyone. A lot of talk about um, visitors, of course, and visitors are all important, but how can it be a place that's comfortable for visitors if it's not comfortable for? for its residents. Skipping forward from your childhood, you then went on to become a construction lawyer, quite a niche profession back then. And midway through your career, you then shifted base to the Middle East. So what was the catalyst for that decision? And were there any experiences you had in that time that you would attribute to who you are today and and why you do what you do? I really had developed a uh, zest for life and and everything that Sydney could offer, and mm-hmm. was putting a lot of money into the pockets of hospitality by being out every night of the week. And and uh, and, and every time I'd max out one credit card, another one would magically arrive. Three years of this, I was like, oh, this can't go on. I, I was an economic refugee, needed to move to a tax rate jurisdiction. No, I um, a little bit of that, but you know, the the quest for international experience was the the catalyst. Um, I wanted to work in a smaller area, so I developed a greater awareness of of the law because it can get really pigeonholed really young here in terms of becoming a specialist. And it, it just was a place that um, I was attracted to for a number of reasons. And when you reflect on the experiences you had at that time, whether they were in work or in situ in the country, were there any experiences that you had that you would attribute to the kind of person you are today? Were they sort of seminal moments that have really played into the psyche of who you are or where you focus today? The one that comes to mind was a uncomfortable experience in Dubai where I pulled up in my convertible Mercedes on the mm-hmm. way to work uh, and then a bus pulled up alongside me um, carrying labourers from the subcontinent and all of whom were my age. I remember locking eyes with this um man and of course I don't know what he's thinking but in my head I I put myself in his position and his day probably looked like going and working on a construction site um, in the high heat risk of death um, trying to provide for his family in a labor camp at night you know the stories have been reported now and I thought what distinguishes him from me really other than being born 
into a privileged environment, which is mm-hmm. why I contextualize any childhood inverted yeah. commas trauma as minimal com- in comparison. And and I think that that just gives, as many people experience at some point, a, a appreciation of what you have. And so these days when everyone asks me how my COVID is going, I'm like, well, amazingly well, if I have to compare myself to people who've lost jobs, lost livelihoods mm-hmm. and whatever else like. So uh, I think that that's, um, you, you know, was a, a seminal moment and maybe that was an insight into the duality of Dubai in terms of mm. it's really just one large labour camp where mm. every strata only can dream of having um, the opportunity and money of the one above it, et cetera, and, you know, you're not engaged with society in the way that and, – and I think maybe that's it. Maybe there was no real way of contributing to it in a cultural sense or in a um, a civic sense and and that led to a sort of period of loneliness in, in, in Dubai where I just thought, oh, this is – Without judging, of course, like for me, wasn't it was it was a whole lot of fun. Don't get me wrong, highly mm. recommend it. But um, I wasn't, you know, necessarily um, felt like feeling whole. It's an interesting as I reflect on you talking about sort of growing up in the southwest of Sydney and feeling perhaps on the outer and trying to be invisible there. Then you go across to the Middle East and actually you're on the inner in the sense that you're in the haves group but still sort of feeling not quite right, a sense of displacement and a sense of loneliness both ways, in group and out group. It's an interesting duality to use your word yet in your own experience of being either side of an in-group or out group. There's always another group as well, isn't it? There's concentric circles or... yes whatever you want to describe because uh, in that context there was an Australian passport holder that looked like a labourer. Uh, mm. So this came into play when, of course, you're in going into nice bars and restaurants or and you're being stopped as a result of a policy that until you start speaking in your strine um, and Australian. they work out that you're, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're Australian, you're not allowed yeah. in. And so I think that that, um, you know, uh, it's a good question, isn't it? When do you actually feel feel at home, you know, it sort of led me along this path to wanting to feel like I am at home in a city and my kids can be at home in a city. And and then, of course, like all, all of which is most true for people whose home it was. And now we're, we're I guess, trying to rush to um, have a better understanding of that and, and embrace it. Let's move to the media group you founded, which is Time Out. Uh, you went on to lead that group for 15-plus years, uh, and with no disrespect, but you had no prior experience in media when you took on that role. What were the principles behind that? Why did you get involved? How did it go from idea to reality? Yeah, uh, so I'm pretty sure I've lost all following with my legal friends these days. So, you know, no one's going to be offended by me saying that <laughs> at that stage of your career, um, you know, five, six years in, there's a quite a crossroads for people in mm-hmm. law in particular. And the best people can come up with is to go and open a cafe or a bar um, or a bookshop as an alternative career. And what qualifies you to do that? Not much. And <laughs> and I remember when uh, the timeout opportunity came up, I canvassed a few people. Um, How did it come up? How does that sort of opportunity just come up? Well, I was playing cards in Dubai. Um, and, uh, <laughs> like all great stories start. I, wanna, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just uh, met uh, someone that was working with timeout in Dubai over, over uh, in social circles and with only the bravado that accompanies someone that is about to have a massive fall from grace, walked into timeouts offices and said, you, you know what you should do with the rights to Australia is give them to me and my mate. We'll do a great job for you. And, um, okay. and an amusing anecdote was at the end of my 20 minute presentation on why we should get the rights. Uh, someone said, and my pitch was actually like timeout global brand, but actually you need Sydney. 
like because we're such a good city, reverse psychology, some would call it. And uh, I, <laughs> at the end, uh, the MD was um, just got a question, and it's uh, what what target CPM are you looking at? And I said, very glad you asked. Um, <laughs> But also, can you just tell me what a CPM is? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, because I didn't know anything about it. And, and this would all play out uh, very rapidly upon launch, uh, as it would turn out, because uh, we launched on the eve of the GFC. Oh, sorry. The, 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 the same day the, the subprime mortgage market collapse was essentially our, our birthday. You know, we were the child of, of Venera um, that told, tells the story of rapidly evolving technologies and migration of audiences and, and how fast you have to run to try and keep up with it if you want to monetize and maintain and build profitability into a business over 15 years so you can finally sell it. And so the opportunity came up. I didn't want to be the person that sat next to me at dinner going, oh, I had that opportunity once and I said no to it. And as hard as that journey has been, by my own estimation and by, I guess, the estimation of those around me whose counsel you trust, uh, as for many people who take that risk, the best decision you ever made because it became the single biggest growth opportunity of my career. So did you have a fall from grace in that time, other than not knowing what the CPM <laughs> measure was? Was there actually? Uh, yeah, well, it was, uh, it bottomed out in 2009. We launched in 2007. Uh, the company nearly went insolvent twice. Um, I was exited in uh, almost all but exited from the company as a part of the solution to new investors. Had to claw my way back in, build How up revenues. How um, did you claw your way back in and did you? feel like you wanted to or just had to? I had to because, and for me, I brought family and friends into um, a very speculative venture, which all made sense if you think back to 2006 when the markets were going bananas and uh, it changed. And and I had to take the view that there was nothing I would not um, give uh, up um, while I could still impact the outcome. So when I got exited, it was, you know, these things happen. To, it's such a common founder story where you, in my case, had a clash with private equity and, you know, and it's just part of the game. It's like, okay, well, we need to sell the product onto new investors. How do we explain it? Well, the guy that didn't know anything about publishing, he's the problem. Let's get rid of him. And, you're, um, you're telling me this story in a fairly matter-of-fact way, but what did it feel like knowing that you had family and friends invested in this, knowing that you were being used as or at least at a scapegoat or solution to a problem or how did that feel at that time to feel like, you, okay, I've got to crawl my way back in and fight? What was that like? Yeah, it's, um, you're right to ask. It, it's, 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 well, it's the hard, hardest thing to go through, isn't it? And it's that Kipling poems. If, if you can see everything you're given, you know, lost on a game of toss and pick, whatever the quote is, that's when you, you know, you're a person and, um, and, and stoop to build a backup with broke, broken tools. You know, that's the, the real measure of someone. And that's what resilience is. Like until you've been tested, how do you know how resilient you are? You know, and um, I, like for me, um, it's partly uh, as I age, and as you associate more with uh, serial entrepreneurs, uh, you can just measure the war stories, and it's very common. Uh, and I'm really no jobs, but it's, it's the jobs example um, exited from Apple, came back, and the rest is now history. In my case, um, and we can get into it a little bit if you'd like, but we can't forget it, but we should learn from that and we should, I think, um, make sure that uh, we do better. Yeah, it's terribly um, uh, levelling. I would like to think that I became a better person. That sounds really cliche, but any semblance of, I'd say, arrogance or, you know, misplaced confidence maybe is a better way of putting it. Um, 
you know, I was borrowing money from friends in a friend in London to live. And while I, while I uh, tried to get myself back in the company um, and would ultimately go on and, you know, play a really instrumental part in building revenues as a salesperson, it sort of reset my life. The decision to start time out was one thing to mm-hmm. go through that as your baptism um, mm-hmm. and then come out of it and then build, sell the company and then finally leave um, uh, with titles of publisher of the year and publishing brand of the year, which are nice acknowledgements. But what I've learned in public service is that if you can't listen, you're nowhere. So I'm listening to your interview with Sally Cap, Sally really did a good job of articulating that to your listenership last episode. Well, thanks for being a listener of the pod. Um, now, while you were running Time Out, you also became the founding chair of NTIA, so the Nighttime Industries Association. Why did you establish that and what were you hoping to achieve with it? I remember sitting in Melbourne in about 2016 and working with a very talented artistic director, Jacob Boemi. I probably got his last name wrong, but at the time he was uh, um, directing Urimboy Festival, First Nations um, Festival in Melbourne. And and I was talking to him into about some concepts. I was trying to get away in Sydney and I just couldn't do it. And he was like, oh, no, we should do this. You should speak to this person. And I had the emotion of wanting to move to Melbourne. And I was like, oh, no, like I'm so proud of Sydney. How can how can Mike want to move to Melbourne? And by that stage, lockout laws had sort of set in. Like to me, I, I didn't love my city the way I, I had at some point. And then I thought, well, you can move or you can assess whether or not you can do something about it and make an impact. And by do something about it, um, that's not pressing like on whichever social media channel. You're kidding yourself if you think that you like something, that you've done anything. You That's not doing anything. What have you really done when you press like? Is that virtue signaling or have you gone and helped the person? Have you contributed to a cause? Have you taken part of you and invested it back in that problem that you've now liked and acknowledged? So, so but... So if I think about that time with the lockout laws, highly emotive time um, for us, for many people from around the world, Sydney was seen as a city with its own bedtime, you know. So as you say, you could sort of hit the like button or the dislike button. But what was the tipping point for you to decide that you wanted to shift from the presser of the like or dislike button, from frustrated observer of lockout laws to outspoken advocate for change? Because essentially that's what you were trying to do, right? Like you wanted to turn that around to fall back in love with Sydney and have everyone else do the same. What was that tipping point for you? I, I, I love um, publishing as a um, business and I actually think it's relevant to what my job today is in um, as a 24-hour economy commissioner for reasons I can come to. So, so in publishing you work with editors and editors have a role to play around commentary. And so in context, we'd run a couple of issues on lockout laws and their impact, covers. We've written about it. And I then started to engage my team. I'm like, hey, our brand is all about going out. Like if, if you can't go out in your city, then we should have something to say about that. And the response was, well, we have. Well, either that hasn't worked or we haven't done enough. And that's what timeout is, right? It's a It's a tool to help you discover your city and be inspired by it. And so in a way, compared to other um, businesses, it was the villain to our hero. It was the enemy of our good. It was the battle that we should fight that if we didn't, who was? And the answer to that was, well, no no other publisher. Without being grandiose, uh, our approach was, well, let's get in and understand the issue and then make a whole bunch of mistakes as we try and work out how to positively impact something. And that gave me an insight very quickly into some of the changes that needed to happen, it's not just about lockout, it's about a different narrative for Sydney, one that we now, uh, you can hear soundbited and written about in the press 
every week because it's been we're now on our own journey towards uh, you know a, a better vision for Sydney in my view. So I, I think it's that thing of um, understanding if you are capable of having an impact, mm-hmm. and if so, what is your duty to act? Mm. And for me, there was a duty to act. So as you said, if you're capable of doing that, at the time I recall, and I know so many people will, it was an emotionally charged time with the one punch, you know, the coward king hits, et cetera. It was a highly emotive time, really important that, you know, the city was rallying around, arguably a blunt instrument with the lockout laws, not just about that, but that was happening at the time. So how do you take a conversation on a macro level that would have been quite an emotional loaded conversation and bring the nuance that's required to that conversation. As you say, it's not just about lockout, but you were able to bring nuance and layers to that. How did you do that? It, it's it's one of those things that doesn't necessarily happen in a linear manner, does it? And I, I should, as I would always hope to acknowledge that there's never one hero either. Like it's a, a team of people collectively working and uh, this team, this cast is extensive. The bit that occurred to, uh, I guess, the group that oh, we talked about was, well, is this a problem you can solve or not? And and in that way, at that time, the language of the debate was very much characterised by police, alcohol, violence, health terminology, mm-hmm. all that very emotive polarising language, which um, uh, is great fodder for um, broadsheet media mm. and was simplistic and obscured other issues like the demise of culture, city vibrancy, mm. and and not just the economic impact of F&B not trading because it was far broader than that and was recognising the ecology of going out and who had a stake in it and who needed to get active. So, so just some problem-solving analysis. Um, and then I think the – I like to think that I contributed something to it and perhaps the bit that I contributed was the storytelling component, which was – and the legal bit, which is if you can't win on this debate, let's go find another debate. <laughs> you know, And you're never going to win on that language. And particularly if the core advocates are people with self-interest in direct economic benefit from it. So nighttime economy, city culture, vibrancy, livability is a much more complicated, much more nuanced discussion. And it is a much harder discussion to have because you need to build alignment between stakeholders who don't who see themselves largely as competitors when it comes to each of their art forms and entertainment offerings. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of like a media branding aspect to this in a sense narrative piece, find, find language which you can move to. But then the other side was, well, how do you unite people behind something? And um, and, I, and I think that this one may have been one of mine. Um, it's, it's hard when you start seeing your own sound bites quoted back in media. And, uh, and <laughs> everyone's mine? a genius. It sounds good. <laughs> but, um, but it was, um, I, I said to, so time out, right? Like what it cares about is that you go out and have fun. doesn't really care if that's a ice cream, a walk on the beach, a bar, a music festival, a theatre show. Hamilton, whatever, right? Just doesn't want you at home um, for extended periods of time. So I'm really agnostic about what people do when they go out, but I just care that they go out. <laughs> and, and so I basically said to that in the industry, I said, well, you're all arguing over whose customer it is. The couch is winning, offering a pretty competitive reason for people to stay in at home, particularly in contexts where the city's saying it's not safe and you shouldn't go out, you know, so it has a bedtime, right? So like, 
um, that became a unifying emblem in some ways of uh, the campaign. Yeah, I think stakeholder alignment, finding first, it's first and second follower, all that kind of thinking um, is how you can build momentum around um, around things and then everyone, you know, you're winning when when um, when a politician gets up and goes, it was my idea, you know, all along. You know, that's, <laughs> the, that's the true measure of success. Um, so, and that's, Another measure of success was that the lockout laws have changed. What did that feel like when that was announced? Yeah, I mean, one shouldn't over um, underestimate the importance of that, but uh, it's it would not have been enough. Like changing a law um, is is was not only the only thing that was broken, and if you think it was, you won't. The opportunity cost of that decision is vast. So what we said or thought was that, like anything, the reason the reason Melbourne Victoria has done a great job on so many fronts is because they. They thought about it. They said, that's who we want to be and we're going to implement a strategy and that is consistent with who we are and the and the people we represent and align everyone to it, mm, full stop. High full intentionality stop. around it. Right? Now, as a uh, uh, state, that's what New South Wales has not only done but it's gone one further. It said we're going to get everyone in a room together across industry, councils, New South Wales government, we're going to work out what is the best way to take this forward. We're going to pull together a strategy. We're going to find some Muppet called Rodriguez to be the one that's in charge of it. And we're going to get him um, and his team to help implement a government strategy that has already got stakeholder alignment built into it. But not just for the benefit of venues who once upon a time had a close time earlier than they were hoping, but for the economic prosperity and the civic amenity of all. Like it's a very different thing. The 24-hour economy strategy for New South Wales is the only strategy of its kind in the country and as few direct comparators globally. And it comes because we weren't what happens when you really shut a city down and we thought we can't do that again. And, and what comes from that is, well, how do you stop it just swinging back to where it was before? You know, that's the, 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 the challenge of that situation and the bit that I'm sort of there to try and oversee. It's interesting, you know, because I think, you know, we just jumped into the the 24-hour economy piece of it. But for me, when I think about the hurdles that you faced, we started with the GFC and we ran into the lockdown, the lockout laws, you jump the not insignificant hurdle of lockout laws and then in the same period of time the world finds itself facing a pandemic and now we're contending with lockdowns. So, and you are leading a company called Timeouts where the success measure, as you quite rightly say, is all about getting people out and suddenly we're all being relegated to time in. Um, so I can't imagine, did it feel like the metaphorical hurdles just kept coming? <laughs> what next? What did you do at that time? Before we get into the 24-hour economy piece, which I know is really related here, but I'm really interested in the what that was like. It's it's all a bit of, it's in that uh, the lost time of the pandemic, isn't it? Mm. No one knows what year it was and what, how the thing went down, but the lockout was a cold. This is pneumonia now. Mm. There's a big difference. And and I, by that stage, had industry bodies set up and whatnot. And so playing a dual role across nighttime industries and timeout, okay, yeah. um, you know, really went hard into the, the, the mission of the business, which was not only to inspire people to go out, but in circumstances where that whole ecosystem was being uh, totally devastated, how could we preserve the infrastructure of the city and also, and importantly, the connection to the businesses that comprise that emotion, that feeling. Not only the revenue component, very important, so please like, yes, buy from these people, whatever, but also the connection between the hosts of the city, the people who put on the show, give you the 
fun vibes and uh, their audience. And so the pivot, as people love to describe, um, was, you, you know, a global um, move by Time Out. And, um, and so I seldom, not never, seldom claim credit where it wasn't mine, but that was that was um yeah the the CEO Julia Julio Bruno uh, at the time um said we need to we need and it helped being part of a global business because mm-hmm. as you would know you've got data coming in from multiple sectors so you don't stick your head in the sand and go she'll be right mm-hmm. um so there was there was that was a decision but then I think not just about in that time the success of of because ultimately that's what would ultimately lead to the awards and whatever else right but. But because we had, we were our best selves, and we delivered against our brand promise and our brand um, reason for existence at that moment. The other side of it, from a management perspective, is the bit about the real reason you can only do that is if you're an effective leader, and you have, as was happening, your senior managers coming in and saying, "Hey, we we, we will take a pay cut." before you, you're going to them, you know, because mm. the moment that happens, you know, you've built the right organization. Mm. You know, that is what a good organization looks like. And you can't get that overnight. You only mm. get it for, for years of truly understanding what it means to lead people. And that leaders, as Simon Sinek would say, eat last. Mm-hmm. You've talked about, <laughs> I, I was determined not to call you the nightmare because it sounds like nightmare if I say it fast. So I'm just going to go with the 24 well, That's what my wife's favorite uh, message is. <laughs> I was like, how am I going to avoid saying nightmare? Um, so the 24-hour economy commissioner, tell me, it's an exciting strategy. We'll talk about that in a second. But what is your nighttime dream for Sydney? Yeah, I, this is one I wrestle over. Um, and it was asked to me a few years ago when I when Soapbox Mike, as he was then known, looking for opportunities to get up on stages and just rant um, and often did. Someone said, okay, Michael, what's your vision for Sydney? And my answer is, I think, still, as I said then, largely unchanged is my dream is that we can have a dream, that people can contribute to that dream. And that is only possible if you have equity of access to be able to do that. And I like the word dream because it relates, you know, to the longest history of this country. And and, like this is going to really sound airy-fairy for some of your listeners, but like – I had the privilege of being an event uh, called Fab- Fabrics of Multicultural Australia where people of different background got up and um, as part of a fashion show and I'm talking from Afghani designers to Maori to Indigenous to mm-hmm. Indian to China, like and I had to do an impromptu speech and it was at the National Maritime Museum which is really about Australia's migratory past and mm-hmm. I'd been inspired the night before by uh, um, a, a First Nations speaker who talked about uh, the water patterns from the different tribes of um, the aura along the coast and into the harbour. And it, the metaphor of water being an intermingling of different stories is where I land on this. And that surely is our greatest opportunity. And it's, it's relevant to everybody because everyone's come across the water and everyone has a story. And that is true of our Indigenous people. It's true of our um, our colonial forebears and it's true of us um, recently arrived. And so the 24-hour economy strategy, Mike, whatever you want to call it, like has in, in publishing terms, I remain a publisher because the publisher doesn't decide the story. The publisher has to go out and find and enable the storytellers. And that's what, that's what I hope to do with this role. So when asked by... Uh, the, uh, those that want an easy answer to this, I'm like, well, I'm not going to give you an easy answer. Like it's not for me to decide what should go where and who should do what. It's for local communities uh, engaging with each other and their uh, industry and in their area to 
come to an agreement about what their area means to them and how they want to express that story. And the people who do it well will uh, have happier communities and people will want to visit them. That's the thinking and the and because that makes it exciting. Like our competition to get people out of the house is to make uh, our city as vibrant and multi-channel and multi-dimensional as Google are now trying to own Netflix mm-hmm. binge stand to make it easy for you. Like I want you to walk out of the house and go, what are we going to do now, you know? And and in a city like Sydney, it, it is one of few cities of the world. It's seventh in terms of multicultural uh, makeup, I think. Combine that with our topography and our Indigenous past. I, you can, we have the ingredients that uh, I, I think are without peer. I defy anyone to challenge me on that. <laughs> Okay. But that's what I, I think. I think the state wants me thinking that way, and I genuinely believe it. So it's not an ask. So let me understand a bit more about this this storytelling through city. Where are cities that tell great stories? How does a city tell a great story? And how do we coalesce our city or our councils and communities within city to agree on the story that they want to showcase? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, look, it's a collective um, and evolving answer. And at different times of uh, historian, I am not, but at different times of history, you will find no doubt that uh, kingdoms have risen and fallen. Uh, the reputations of cities have follow suit. I think that's a really big question. I think that um, I can only answer it from the perspective of my contribution to it, which is to enable and give access to people to to to, to better do that piece of storytelling. Does that happen everywhere? Probably not. Even the cities are the most highly regarded. And as we approach the challenges of climate, as we approach the challenges of uh, actually being equal, that measure will change the reputation of cities. But why, why we may have present day regard for City X, in 20 years will we have the same regard for it? Well, only if these things remain true will they evolve into. So, yeah, that's the deeper answer. The easier, the, the shorter answer is have a good brand marketing strategy and, you know, <laughs> and, and rig the indices. <laughs> well, you know, you use the word evolve, so I'm going to stay on that one for a second because I read the 24-hour economy strategy, be very proud of me, and right up front um, the 24-hour vision is set out and what I loved was I loved that, that piece because it personifies a city and there's a line in there that said true cities of the world never stop. They surprise and evolve. They're not just open to change they embrace it. So I'm keen to understand from you, what are the kinds of changes that you see that our city needs to embrace? I mean, in my capacity as 24-hour economy commissioner, it's pretty well laid out um, and in that strategy. And, you know, it speaks to principles of diversity, um, placemaking, pillars, Mm -hmm. there's boxes, there's governance committees, there's a whole bunch of things there. Um, But I... If they are truly evolving, then they need to. The story of that city needs to evolve with the people that that city com, is comprised of, in light of its history. And and government's main role is creating the enabling environment for that to happen. Dismantling of unnecessary regulation that impedes that. Um, questioning and playing a role in, for example, deciding that why would you not use outdoors since we love them? If you can have our fresco dining and and in in Sydney, um, in in times when you know the use of the motor vehicle is now being changing while active transport's on the rise. So there's a whole bunch of impacts that can be made as we better calibrate consumer expectation and future audiences to what the city is willing to offer. And so in terms of uh, the work that I think a lot about, uh, which is embedded in the strategy, if not necessarily articulated in, is what does the future of 
going out look like? Another way of saying that is what is the future of culture in our city? And so my reference point is as much as I need to be conscious of and embrace our past and our history and our legacy, but how do the storytellers, the the goal routerers, the experience seekers that are 15 and under, how, how will they make their contribution? What do they need? You know, because a government strategy will have long-lasting impact. So how can I better enable engagement for all? You know, I'll give you a couple of tangible examples as I've been speaking in riddles for half of this, but it's an example of alcohol consumption, declining per capita, fast growth of non-alcoholic beverages category. And so in terms of product choice, health, well-being, those types of market forces will shape the future product. Government's role is to kind of get in there and recognise that. Does it help or hinder? And is industry matching and keeping up with consumer change? And if not, how do we help them do that? Because that's what the advantage of having a strategy is. So to get to those sort of platitudes that reel off the tongue nicely, diverse, safe, vibrant, inclusive, et cetera, the government's role is really to help create the environment for that to happen and then pull whatever levers it has. So investing in things as is currently the case around many of our programs, um, which is CBD's revitalization and other things and or impacting regulation and or educating people. Mm. Because, you know, as I think about, you know, you talked about what's not a small question here about what does the future culture of the city look like, you know, big question to be, you know, framing and shaping. It does imply or have inherent within that the need to change a collective mindset from associating nighttime with alcohol and danger um, and to seeing nighttime as a place of vibrancy and safety and community. So is it the story, is it a combination of some of those tactical kind of legal hurdles along with a vision and along with storytelling that is going to be really the impetus for making that kind of, I think, not insignificant collective mindset shift. Mm. And to add to that sort of line of inquiry, the impact of the pandemic in all of it, if you accept that um, pandemics tend to shape uh, and accelerate things, for example, saying goodbye to the top hat and tails, you know, like these are, these are the things that follow um, pandemics. Um, yes. And it is in that direction for sure. And I think the opportunity is to is to see the world afresh while everything's being questioned and understand government's changing role now in, in how to most positively impact those outcomes. If you take a really simplistic view, it's do these five things and she'll be right, you know, mm-hmm. get rid of noise complaints, like mm. repeal the lockout law, you know, cut red tape, everyone loves that one, you know, but, but more deeply, and, and they're all really important by the way, like don't let me be too glib about them, planning reform, in future use of industrial spaces. There's a whole bunch of um, public space access, you know, a whole bunch of things that like are relevant to the future use of the city. You know, the, the, the kind of deeper questions, how does, how does the person I don't know exist yet love and are proud of their city? That's the, the kind of thing where the pandemic pause, makes everyone pause for thought. The businesses that can kind of positively shape the discussion, working proactively with government. It's one of the best things that's come out of the pandemic is the ability for government to be engaged in conversations like this and many others trying to work out how better to better serve the public and adapt and use the, the crisis as a, as a growth opportunity. Uh, and that's, you know, bringing it back, the 24-hour economy strategy, I believe. I'm really privileged to be overseeing that. And in the context of Investment New South Wales, which is the wider, you know, government economic development um, strategy, now Department of enterprise, innovation, Mm. and trade. 
Um, you know, so and that's 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 seizing the moment and and looking out for both citizen amenity and and for economic um, prosperity in the future. According to the twenty four economy strategy, many people want to have input into shaping our nighttime economy. I think it was something like fifty seven percent said, but they didn't know how to contribute. I love that you said earlier that people can contribute to the dream. So what would you say to people about how they can contribute in shaping the city? And like it goes back to this fundamental question and I think a lot of the you've been asking, it's about there's, there's a difference between theoretically having access and then, then being helped to have access, mm. right? So, you know, there's a job for me to do in the work I'm doing to make that product, that engagement more accessible. So we can talk about that. But the most powerful thing is uh, consumer spending. Like where do you spend your money and why? And if you want to uh, have a positive impact and you have cash and you've got a discretion as to where to spend it, think about what you're supporting and what you're not and why you're supporting it and why you're not. That's that's the harder question. Like think about where your dollar goes when you make a decision on supporting a local business versus something that comes to you that's got three intermediaries behind it. That's the, it may be easy. Convenience is the uh, enemy of sustainability, right? Like we understand that. That's the thing that we've got to wrestle with. And I think consumer spending is really increasingly and happily becoming more conscious at the younger demographic than perhaps others when you have the opportunity. Um, And so, you know, you want to support, you know, arts and culture, which artists do you care about? You know, like that's the question. If you, if you really care, if we're a genuinely community, then should not we be supporting our artists in the community you know these are and these are things that um when after the first glass of wine and people start questioning they start getting bored with people like me at the dinner table because yeah here's how you can make a difference are you willing to do it now is the question the last three three fast questions on change to finish the podcast so I'm going to change tack for a moment here, Michael, or actually as we draw to a, an end of the conversation here, just with the fast three questions for you. Don't deliberate too much. Just what is your quick answer to it? What What are you reading, watching or listening to right now? I have uh, just completed, I'm going to throw that in there, Leviathan, okay. which is uh, John Birmingham's unauthorised biography of uh, Sydney, written ah. in 1999. Great insight into uh, a historical lens on Sydney's uh formative years uh, since colonisation and uh, and the power structures that ensue. And I am partway, not yet there, on completing Terry Janke's True Tracks, which is uh, Guiding Principles for Respecting Indigenous IP. Very good. Well, that sounds like really powerful reads there. Now, speaking of powerful, what's your superpower? Now, this can be something that's additive to the world or it could be a useless party trick. <laughs> I've been told that my superpower is to, I've got the power of speaking to people and making them believe something. Now, I don't know. <laughs> God, I just believed everything you just said, so we, we just, I'm hoping uh, it's true. We did, I'll tell you, as an aside, we did this exercise at timeout when the pandemic hit. Uh, and you got a choice, right? A lot of people downsized and whatever. I was like, well, hang on a second. I value my stuff. And this do more with less thing, whatever. You know, it's like do more with what you've got. But what have we got is the question. So we made everyone, rate everyone in the business on what superpower they had. Oh, right. So, so it wasn't up to me to say what superpower yeah. I had. And now uh, editorial director was like, Mike, you can just make people believe stuff. <laughs> so I don't know. You'd Let's go judge. with vision setting, not um, BSing, hey? <laughs> <laughs> now, if you were going to put a quote up on a billboard, what would it be? So this one I did give some thought to because I, I can, you know, cite some famous ones. But the one that um, I come back to is um, half respect the dress code. Half respect. Okay. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that. It, it doesn't mean that you should you should underdress, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's just, that just don't fully Don't be a slave to it. it. 
yeah. a nod to it, but don't yeah. uh, over-service it. So, so typically you'll find me um, either entirely overdressed or entirely <laughs> underdressed. Um, but either way, either way, I'm using um, you know what I'm what I'm wearing partly to help um, me communicate and engage with people and and shift potentially what they may think on on issues that are important to me. I like that. I like that a lot. Michael, hey, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed the conversation. It's incredibly topical to come back uh, into this new year with this conversation. I can see why they called you the fanboy of cities. I, um, I've enjoyed hearing your stories of growing up. I can hear themes of identity and acceptance and belonging that permeate what you do today. Um, thank you for your candor on the harder times. I think, you know, your line around the villain to our hero, you've had many villains to the hero of the city. You've had the GFC, you've had the lockouts, you've had the lockdowns. Um, but building back up with broken tools is something that you have um, obviously shown. I can see the power of storytelling is going to be even more strong through our cities. I think your challenge to, for us all to contribute to the dream is an important one. I think it's ours to make this be an intentional and conscious rebuilding of our city. And I know I'm personally really excited about reimagining and re-engaging with our city and I hope everyone else feels the same. And I would say this isn't just a story of Sydney or it's not a story of New South Wales. It's around engaging with communities, creating vibrancy and community. So thank you so much for your time, Michael. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Neil. Thanks for having me. The Change Happens podcast from EY, a conversation on leading through change. Discover more where you get your podcasts. 